0: Hi everyone. This is Michael. In this episode, Stefan and I spoke with Arun Agarwal, the Samuel Trask Dana professor at the School for Environment and Sustainability at the University of Michigan. This was a really fun conversation and one that honestly I've been hoping to have since we started this podcast a few years ago. Arun is an important figure in the study of the commons and the related topics of conservation and development. We talked about his views of the commons research program and his contributions to it including his book environmentality and a recent special issue on commons governance and enforcement in the proceedings of the national academies of sciences that he co-edited we also talked about arun's roles as the editor-in-chief of the journal world development and as the former director of the international forestry resources and institutions or ifri research program which is still today one of the best examples of a longitudinal and cross site comparison of local natural resource management and governance. Yeah, well, great. Uh, thanks again, Arun, for joining us. I've been. Uh, we've been talking about trying to get you on the podcast for a while. I know we had sent you an invitation a little while ago, and so I'm glad we're finally making it happen. I remember, you know, hearing about you during my time at Indiana University when I was a PhD student there, and I learned later, I think, that you you were a postdoc at Indiana, if I have it correct, in like '96, '97.
1: Yeah, I was a postdoc there, uh, I think 96, 97, you're right, and before that, in fact, I spent a year at Indiana uh, in 88, 89 as well as a, as a graduate, visiting student, visiting researcher or something like that at that time.
0: Okay, and that's when you're a grad student at Duke, is that correct too?
1: Yeah, I, I wrote an article for one of my classes, a term paper on Hobbes and Hobbes's state of nature, and um, you might recall that Vincent uh, loved Hobbs, mm-hmm. Hobbs and the Torquil, but his like uh, his jam. His, yeah, they were his his people. So yeah,
0: yeah.
1: My one Meg McKean said, "Why don't you send it to Lynn? I'm sure she'll like it." And Lynn, uh, I guess, shared it with Vincent, and she wrote me back saying, "How would you like to come spend a year at uh, IU?" So I I fi- finished my. Exams and I and then I went to IU for a year and that year was actually funded by the workshop by Lynn I guess. Okay, very cool. Yeah, I was very I was very fortunate to have had that interaction with her before uh, before really launching into my dissertation research.
0: Okay, and so can I ask you. What led you down that path to begin with, to get the PhD, to be interested in development and conservation and decentralization specifically? I'm aware that you got, I think it's two degrees in India before coming over and studying at Duke. So can I ask you kind of when you think about your own history, what are the, what are the events that led you down that path?
1: You know, you're right. I got a B.A. in history and an M.B.A. in uh, management from the uh, before I came to the U.S. and they these degrees reflected an initial interest and then a uh, how should I, disillusionment. So I thought I would be interested in. Uh, working in the, in the Indian government. And a lot of people who did that, they'd got a history degree before they took the civil service exams. And I, I realized at the end of three years of my bachelor's work that that's not what I wanted. And I was fortunate to get into this business school, which everybody who was doing economics or commerce or accounting or even engineering tried for. And people from history didn't usually go into that or try for that. And I tried and I got in and uh, my summer internship made me realize that I don't really want to work for a business organization. And I had a faculty member at the IAM, Mamdabha, that I was getting my degree, who a guy called Anil Gupta, who was working on commons, really just an amazing, very charismatic, uh, professor, and he got me interested in agricultural development, development commons, and he, in fact, suggested that I get in touch with, you know, Meg McKean and Nancy Pelusa and Lynn Ostrom, and that's when I thought, okay, I've struck out on two different career options. Let me try a third one, and I wasn't really sure that I would become an academic and a researcher or stay in academia. I thought, well, if I get a get a, I could only have come to the U.S. if the university funded my my graduate work, and and I got a fellowship from Duke and some support from Indiana, and thought, well, worst comes to worst, I'd have a four-year paid holiday in the United States, <laughs>
2: so mm-hmm. yeah. I
1: came to the U.S. Duke had given me a fellowship which covered all my costs, so that's where I went to work with Meg McKean who was the uh, director of graduate studies at that time. And so that she was, was just, your
0: advisor, Room? sorry.
1: She was my advisor. She was on my dissertation committee. My advisor turned out to be Robert Bates, who okay. coincidentally came to Duke the same year I did and then left for Harvard the same year I graduated. So it was kind of like providential. It was fun to be at... Duke for five years and to meet everybody, you know, that's the time that the Commons Association came into being. The Common Property meetings started, I attended the planning meeting which Meg McKean organized at Duke and met really everyone. Uh, And amazingly, so many of the leading scholars of the Commons were women, unlike so many other fields in, in the academy. And I just sort of fell in love with working on the commons and thinking about how commons form an alternative to both central and market oriented governance arrangements, which was what Lynn was doing and Meg McKean was doing and you know Lynn Thinkerton was doing and uh, Pauline Peters were doing just like one after the other, mm-hmm. all the leading scholars on the Commons, Bonnie McKay, they're all women and they're all there at that planning meeting. So that's really what got me into working on this. and then once I worked with uh, Lynn for a year as a graduate student at Indiana and went and did my field work, I also came to think a lot about how the idea of the Commons and work on Commons is a lot is more than a lot more than being just about natural resources. So yeah, it attracted my attention back. When I was doing an MBA, and then I still continue to work on some of the same issues.
0: And when you say that the work on the commons is much more than just about natural resources, like what are the ideas and concepts that have like excited you and inspired you related to the commons?
1: You know, the perhaps the most important idea around the Commons around work on the commons is that people can work together and overcome the expected prediction from many rational choice researchers that self interested people cannot cooperate. And so you see all of these examples of cooperation. And I think that speaks to a lot more than whether they cooperate over how to manage their natural resources. It speaks to the capacity of human beings to be human because you don't necessarily think that people will give up some of the interest they have in advancing their position, their resources, their capacities to help others. And I think the work on commons forces you to consider that both possibility and an astonishingly large number of examples from your from our everyday lives and our experiences to seeing how things have evolved over the long run in the world. Right. And in many ways, I also think you know, we complain about the Anthropocene and the ways in which human beings have really dominated the world. And I think the idea of the commons stands in both in opposition to, and as an inspiration about what is possible for those of us who are living in the Anthropocene to do and to support and to promote. So I think it is much more than just natural resources. It is about what it means for us to be working as human beings in social contexts?
0: Hmm. So Run, part of what I feel like I heard in that answer was an appreciation for understanding what it means to be human. Like, it, it, there's, The idea of the commons very much relates to ideas of human nature and kind of Reminds me of a humanistic perspective that I feel like I've seen in some of your writing. So I, I was I've been reading through your, your book, Environmentality, and it was interesting to read it. Having experienced you largely through your work with IFRI, the International Forestry Resources and Institutions Project, which I'd like to ask you explicitly about in a second. So there's this whole big quantitative enterprise broadly comparative work that I know you you know you you've led and been involved in for a long time and I read this book that you know it was quantitative you had done some surveys and you had some data and there were tables etc but there was also you know you're talking about Foucault and you're you're using a lot of nouns that I hadn't heard before that I had to digest in order to understand what you were talking about how do you see yourself is the first one I want to ask this because I think a lot of our guests, um, this is a kind of another standard question that, that we like to ask is kind of what do you call yourself and how do you experience yourself as an interdisciplinary scholar? Have you, it seems like you're someone who combines these different perspectives. How has that gone for you? How have you experienced that?
1: That's a big question, Michael. I'm not sure I have a good answer to that. I guess the main thing to say is that I, I started doing uh, even as late as 2000, you know, when I had already been a faculty member for seven, eight years, I wasn't sure that academia and research are what I want to do. I toyed with the idea of going into the private sector. I worked, in fact, for a very short, brief period of time with a consulting firm uh, where a bunch of my our cohort members from the uh, management institute to which I went were were, were working, and you know the when I, what kept me in academia was the idea that I could ask really anything that a question that interests me. I I could ask myself a question that interests me, and then uh, work on that uh, while somebody pays me to meet my expenses and I think that that freedom to whatever extent it continues to exist in academia is perhaps the most attractive thing about it and for me what's really attractive about it is that it allows me to at least to some extent not get typed As a particular kind of researcher, because I like to think to myself that I do research because I'm interested in the things that I'm doing research on. I don't do it because, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's true of everyone. That everybody does research on the questions that they're interested in. I
0: think that's Um, right. I mean, I think often
1: we we. We stop ourselves from asking questions because we think they are not really the kind of questions our training or our methods or our knowledge can allow us to answer. And I feel like it's partly true, but we get the space, at least when we are starting in our careers or a few years into our careers, we have the space and the time to get to know new things. And so, you know, writing environmentality and thinking through some of the arguments Foucault makes and trying to understand how people have interpreted him and to what extent I agree with those ways of thinking, including with what Foucault says and how I can use him and his ideas for thinking through questions that I feel excited about or interested by or provoked into engaging that that I think is really the maybe the answer to your question mm-hmm. I think it's it's important not to not to ask questions that that are given to us, but to think about what questions we really uh, are excited about okay. And so, you know, I don't know, I I think, I also, as I said, I was trained as a historian. I uh, had many, many, many anthropologists and literary friends who were in anthropology or literary criticism or English. And, you know, the ideas around post-structuralism and how we... And gain new insights by questioning structural oppositions has always been, even in graduate school, was a part of how I thought. And you know, I feel like doing that, not inverting the weight given to a category in a structural oppo- such structural binary opposition, but instead trying to question the category itself, is really important for those of us who see ourselves as outside of the mainstream of the social sciences or of different disciplines.
0: So I have to ask a follow-up on that because one of the main oppositions I think we have in our field is bottom-up versus top-down governance and that certainly is a theme in that book where you're tracing out the transition from a more, I like these terms, kind of governance at a distance versus intimate governance and I hadn't seen those before. Do you have a, a, a that concern about this binary that, that we that can actually lead us into some kind of analytical trap as well as useful absolutely. as
1: it is Absolutely absolutely I mean think uh, right now I'm working on a project which is described briefly by the phrase everyday adaptations and I think of the astonishingly large amount of literature on adaptation and it is utterly colonized by that binary way of thinking, whether you think about, you know, community-based adaptation or government-led adaptation, proactive versus reactive adaptation, anticipatory versus planned adaptation, anticipatory or planned versus uh, uh, spontaneous adaptation. You know, I think this way of thinking about adaptation has really led the field into a corner where all it does is elaborate on technocratic mechanisms to think about climate change and human response to climate change and I think it is <laughs> and it is surprising that such an astonishingly large number of papers on adaptation have just found it so easy to continue to resort to and to consolidate these structural oppositions instead of thinking through how you get beyond those and how doing so may help you may help you think about more effective ways of dealing with the with the disasters that climate change is going to inflict upon, particularly the more, powerless or the more marginalized or the more disadvantaged uh, populations. So yeah, I think it is that way of thinking is fundamental to the social sciences. And while we may disagree or agree with a lot of what post-structuralism is about, I think the insight that we need to get beyond these binaries to explore more fully the possibilities of what humans can be is a core insight that post-structuralism made possible, and which is still far too rare and far far too much in limited use in the social sciences.
0: I mean, do you see much of that perspective represented in the undergraduate or graduate education at your institution? Or as the much as you the idea
1: like. of uh, the perspective of moving beyond binaries or structural and, Yeah, and
0: that post like the more like the interpretivist, post-structuralist approach. Yeah.
1: I, I, I'm not sure I would say that is true. I think most I'm in a school of sustainability, environment and sustainability, and you know, increasingly many of the institutions that care about environment and sustainability are moving in the direction of either. Changing their names or creating new units that focus on sustainability issues. But these, uh, most of these efforts, academic efforts, are driven by the desire to make a difference. And I think this need to make a difference is often very easily aligned with thinking in oppositional, these structural oppositional terms. Well, don't get me wrong. I don't think that these ways of thinking are wrong. Uh, I think they are insufficient and inadequate. And at some point, they lead you into a dead end because you keep trying to slot things into one or the other category when such categorization is either impossible or because the, the members of these categories don't really... Exist in oppositional relationship to each other, and those you push into one category don't really have uh, a sufficient affinity to be to belong to that category. And I think that's when people start thinking of new categories. People start thinking about different oppositions. So you know, we, it, maybe thinking about these structural differences is part of the way human beings think it's easy for us to think about good and evil, about top and down, about bad and better or bad and good. It is a trap, and I think it is something that we consciously, as careful, uh, systematic investigators, need to get beyond. There's another step and other steps that need to be taken after it, which... Will reward us with different ways of knowing and different ways of thinking and different insights.
2: Yeah, I had to follow up on that because one of the binaries that I think is also out there is quantitative versus qualitative, and I was, and I think that touches on going back to your work on environmentality and how this was a, a mix of, of both approaches. How do you think about? Um, I'm thinking now in my mind because I saw it before. This is the the PNS special issue that you recently co-edited. And this idea of what type of knowledge do we need to advance sustainability science? Um, and this special issue was particularly focused on quantitative experiments, and, but also thinking back to your work in environmentality about topics like uh, to understand the commons. We also have to understand how people become subjects to be governed and how we create subjects of, uh, of governance. And that's very much a qualitative understanding, which takes quite a lot of Um, unpacking and 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 rich rich depth to understand and so i'd be interested in in where you think this mixture of the types of knowledge that we need going forward to solve sustainability problems and and after that how do you think what are what are some of the structures in science which prioritize one or the other Um, and i think this might lead into a discussion about your role as editor at world development
1: yeah, so you know, this, this is a, uh, this is not a question again to which I have an answer. This is I think, pretty, perhaps, a question that everyone who does research thinks about, whether they are quantitative or qualitative researchers. And you know, I often say quantification uh, is preceded by categorization, and categorization is central to how we think. Without categories we would find it very hard to make sense of the world. Uh, there's an interesting, uh, there's a story from Borges, there's art, a, a piece of fiction writing from Borges, who describes a person, Memorius Funes, whose entire life is filled with experiences because spoons appreciates and apprehends everything, everything he sees, and he sees that it, sees a tree, he doesn't see just the leaves and the branches and the wood and the organic matter. He sees all the different forms that the leaves had taken throughout the history of that tree. And the punchline is that in Foonce's experience, there's only experience, there is no knowledge. There is no capacity to link things to one another. And I, I, you know, I've uh, grossly simplified the story, but it's a very striking Uh, a description of what really what research is about. Research is about making connections and making connections requires us to disregard most of the things that we experience and focus in on the things that we believe matter. And that's a very, very, very extraordinarily minute proportion of the things that we experience. So Mm. for us to do research, First of all, it is important for us to make sense of our experiences and to build categories, to think about what the right categories are, to question the ones that we are confronted with and to come up with new ones. But once we have categorized stuff, I think research, at least in the social sciences, in the sciences, pushes us to make connections across these categories, to make Talk about relationships that may exist between the categories of things that we have created. And then we want to consider the extent to which our proposed or hypothesized connections are actually true. So the piece in uh, PNAS and the special issue are really at a late stage of the research process. They're about trying to figure out which kinds of causal connections we are hypothesizing make sense and why, and how to decide before we have even gathered data, which are the right connections, which are the right causal relationships to investigate, explore, and test. But the kind of work I was doing in environmentality is like two stages before that, which is what are the right categories? And are the categories with which we have been thinking about the commons sufficient to make sense of what happens in human relationships with common pool resources? And there I felt most of the existing work, really perhaps all of the existing work on the commons had not appreciated sufficiently how people themselves become different in their relationships with the world with resources and with the institutions through which these resources are governed, so now know that that I think is you know quantifi- quantified causal investigations don't lead you to thinking through what the categories of connections, what the categories and what kind of connections should be. You come to those from I think. An effort to make sense of the experiences that you're having, which is why field work is so important. Fieldwork and reading broadly beyond your discipline are so important to think through what the right questions for you are, right? Everybody asks questions, and some questions are derivative, perhaps most questions are derivative, but we all make an effort to try to come up with questions that interest us and that are different from what other people have asked because. don't want to be answering the same thing that somebody has already answered. But having come upon the question, the kind of work that you mentioned, uh, you know, it's really important for us as scholars of sustainability of social ecological systems of the commons to think through how do we make sense of the relationships that may be there, but which we don't know prior to doing our research, whether they are actually there. And I think, uh the the credibility revolution in economics or the recourse to experiments or the efforts at coordinated experiments are all methodological innovations to try to think through which connections are credible and which connections make sense and which ones are red headings so i think the difference between qualitative and quantitative research is less of an opposition and more of a complementary connection. And the goal of both, as far, as far as scientists are concerned, is the same, which is to ask interesting questions and to answer them in ways that are persuasive and that makes sense and get us closer to understanding the world, but in the knowledge that we will never fully understand the world and uh, we will only try to do that,
0: and that's okay. So, Rune, um, going back to environmentality, one of the things that I saw you do in that book that I think bears directly on this challenge of binaries and putting things in opposition is you—you um, you taught you combined the effects of different categories through what I think would be called something like, like you took kind of an intersectional approach the way the term is now commonly used where someone's experience is not just as a man or a woman or as I'm an old or young, it's the combination of the categories that we each slide into that determine how we experience the world. I suppose at the limit, each of us is just, if you combine all the categories, that's just like me. Cause I'm the only one who fills all my categories. So, and, but that seemed like a helpful way to get beyond, you know, you're kind of combining different binaries or different dimensions to say, well, it's different um, if you're a man or a woman here on how you use the forest and whether or not you break rules, but it's also whether you're in, in this cast or another one, maybe if you're old or young. And so that seems like a really helpful way to move beyond these kind of binary oppositions that, you know, I'll throw in this hypothesis too that one of my main concerns with these like binary oppositions is that I think they, they strongly um, relate to our groupish or tribal mentalities, a lot of them. So, you know, you have the folks that are pro-market or anti-market or the folks who are pro top-down and the other folks who are pro bottom-up and suddenly are, you know you mentioned collective action at the beginning and I think it's helpful to kind of turn that lens onto ourselves and think, well, okay if I'm on one side of a binary and other, how much of is, is of that of, is a function of my own kind of social affiliations? Do I like this because people around me like it, and I want to be in the in group? And I feel like you know that's you know problematic in a lot of ways that I think are obvious to us. It makes collective action and coordination and science and other places difficult. So I think combining those categories, I I really appreciated the way you did that. And then I'm I'm wondering about your thoughts on another possible way to address this binary issue, which is to recognize that things aren't, you know, always mutually exclusive. So there's this big literature, right, on, a, on co-management. And you mentioned adaptation. I, I, I often see the words adaptive co-management thrown in there too, because why not add adjectives to things? Um, do you think that, what do you think of the literature on co-management as a way to kind of square that circle and get beyond the binary of top-down versus bottom-up?
1: Yeah. Uh, that's an interesting question, and I guess the I'll take a step back and say uh, categories exist for a reason, right? I mean, I, you know, as if you recall, the the example I mentioned of memorious spoons, we we experience the world, and then we want to make sense of it, and some categories make sense of the world for us better than others, and which categories make a better make better sense of the world for us. Uh, differs across people For some categories, categories are more easily accessible to more people and some less so right so all of these categories of men and women and good and bad they are all about making sense of the world in ways that resonate with who we are and who we are becomes also evolves and becomes over time rather than being something predefined and that Happens in relation to our experiences, how people respond to us, and so on and so forth, what we do, etc. So, you know, co management is an interesting and useful and good category. It's interpreted differently by different people. Some ally it with or think of it as being fully uh, uh, or being identical with decentralization. Some see it as being about community-based management, some see it as about state control. So I guess what I want to say in response is every statement is only partially true, right? So ignoring the paradox of that statement itself, co management makes sense, not necessarily as a way to think about some middle ground between top down versus bottom up, but as a category that makes allows us to make sense of some of the things going on in the world and some of the things that we want to see going on in the world. But co-management as a descriptor of what is going on in the world is only partially true, right? It's not what happens all over the place. It's To some extent, you can say everything is co-management because it requires contributions towards management from lots of different locations, some sort of a you know, we live in a polycentric world despite some people's desires for it to be completely utterly top-down, versus others desires for it to be completely utterly bottom up but we live in a polycentric co-managed world and so the only thing that varies is how much of the contribution towards management comes from a lower or sideways or upper levels of uh, uh in a hierarchy so you know, I, I guess I would say, as a descriptor, either co-management describes everything, but then we don't really uh, have the, you know, we, if we use that way of describing things as you know as co-management, we still are left with, okay, how do we make sense of the differences that occupy that category of co-management? Or co-management is only partially descriptive of what is going on in the world, and we're still have to think through what lies outside of that category, either as an objective descriptor or as a as a desired normative uh, goal for management. And I think that's what in many ways makes research interesting, because we don't know the answers to these questions, and we want to figure them out by connecting or relating our expectations with what we see or what we think is happening in the world. And sometimes we our expectations are confounded and sometimes they ring true and both of those experiences are joyful.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, one thing I'm taking out of this is this you know, push and pull and the need for pluralism. Uh, you know, we, we, this push and pull between the need to perhaps question and constantly reshuffle the categories and they need to, con- to test them and get uh, test causal inference in their relationships. And I'm interested in how you thought about this uh, during your tenure at World Development and how you thought about shaping the vision for that journal and how you thought about balancing the contributions which fit along that spectrum and didn't overemphasize certain aspects and how to think about which, uh, how to prioritize certain types of research in that field? And what was that process like for you?
1: That's a great question. You know, as a journal editor, or I would say for most journals, for most journals, especially those which are relatively well-established, the degrees of freedom that an editor has are very limited, which is kind of a paradox, right? If, you, if a journal is new, I think the degrees of freedom for an editor are much greater than if a journal is old and established. And there are two ways in which your degrees of freedom are smaller. And I experienced both of them as editor of world development. One, you have such a flood of manuscripts that you don't have enough time to think about what kind of journal you would like your journal to be and what articles would make it move in that direction you are you are you don't have enough time the second is you have you get so many articles that are driven by the reputation of the journal that you have limited capacity to change what the journal already is the 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 weight of history sits on your chest, like an incubus, to paraphrase Marx. So you just kind of do what you have to do. And you certainly exercise some judgment and some uh, agency in thinking about which articles fit with your vision of the journal and which, and therefore should get sent out, which articles are so well done that regardless of whether they fit in your future vision of the journal, they should still get sent out. and. Some articles are just as good as the ones they've already published. And so even if you don't agree with their message they've been done well enough that you should send them out. You know, you, I rejected, I think, close to 70% of the articles. I did have some agency, but on the other hand I was bound by mostly articles that we were getting. I had two objectives and I started editing world development and they have had both unintended consequences and uh, uh, and some intended consequences, which is One, to try to increase the impact factor of the journal, very uh, mechanistic and uh, instrumental uh, goal. Try to increase the impact factor of the journal to where it would match better the reputation of the journal. So When I started, the journal's impact factor was 1.5 and had been there for the last decade or maybe 20 years. And I succeeded in that. some extent. Uh, this year, uh, based on all the stuff that got published while I was editor in 2000, into 2020, I think it was five or a little higher than five. So I felt very happy about that. Uh, but, the, but the unintended sort of uh, effect of that goal was one, to really try to think through what would be interesting to readers of world development which made me stick a little bit more closely perhaps to my imagined audience the second goal i had was to and this is something i believe in uh fundamentally that we cannot have development without having sustainability and we cannot have sustainability without having development so you know world development when i became editor was i think much more focused on publishing work on development and I made a conscious effort to expand the kinds of stuff we published to include work on sustainability. And you know I mean, to, to give you an example of about 20,000 reviewers in our database, if I searched for the two words climate adaptation, I found eight reviewers on it. so <laughs> in, in our 20,000 reviewer database and this was back in 2012. So I really made a cautious effort to expand the kind of work we were publishing to move beyond what conventionally is thought of development to also include what conventionally we think of as sustainability, inextricable as a relationship between the two I might believe to be. So that I think uh, had the unintended consequence of also helping improve the journal's impact factor because I think work on sustainability has been growing and should be growing even faster, but it has been growing and growing very fast over the last decade or so. And I think world development benefited from this small shift in focus uh, towards representing more research on issues related to sustainability. Hmm. Uh, The third thing that I did was to, well, another Another thing I believe is that there is so much work being published, so much original research being published, that it's not possible for anybody to keep track of it, even for their smaller, relatively small, specialized fields. And so synthesis and reviews are a central part of making sense of what is going on in the world of research, and by extension, what is going on in the world. So that's something else. I started a set of a new section called development reviews, which were written by people that we identified and and invited to to craft the reviews. And I think that was also a useful addition to what uh, world development does.
2: Yeah, given, you know, there might be considered or called ecology of games when you think of all the editors and the various journals and having to make these kind of strategic decisions. And I'm, I'm wondering having you having been in that position for a while do you feel like that this, this the current system of, of academic publishing uh, serves academic community as well at the moment and and I think I would lead that into a broader question of what might academic communities need the to help kind of address some of the challenges that we have in communicating and sharing our work uh, etc.
1: So see, academics do three things they teach they do research, and they interact with each other, and they train new uh, uh, intellects, both for changing the world or making doing things in the world and for continuing themselves, continuing their tribe. And, and I think uh, for all of those three things, there are institutions that exist. To extract the surplus that academics produce. Universities extract the surplus from our teaching, journals extract the surplus, academic commercial journals extract the surplus from our research, and associations extract the surplus from our efforts to entrain a new generation or train a new generation. Uh, so, you know, your question: Does the current system serve academics? Uh, in a manner of speaking, yes, uh, it certainly serves academics. Does it serve academics well or as well as it should? No, the current system, particularly when it comes to research production and uh, sharing, publishing and sharing is utterly broken. And it's broken because everybody is pursuing our institution, our universities, uh, the commercial publishers, and we as academics ourselves, we are doing things that are in front of us, that are in front of our noses. We are not doing what the system, what a better system might require or mean. And maybe if we did that, it would only last for a while and would break up, break again. So what, what I think, why is the publishing system broken? Because that's really where you focused. I think it's broken because we, are guided and are incentives by these uh, by these indicators of journal impact factor and visibility and prominence and reputation instead of being having the time and the capacity to really evaluate articles on their merits, on what is written in them. So you know maybe maybe 80% of what is published in any major journal is not worth reading. Let alone what is published in non major journals. But we credit things that get published in well known journals and high visibility, high impact factor journals. We credit that much more than stuff that is published in less visible, less prominent journals. So, you know, for us to move beyond that, it would require that we. Assess the merits of a piece by what's in it, and to, to some extent we do it. But you know, our first or shortcut indicators are not ones that should have as much weight and as much meaning as they do for us. I think because most of the existing top-ranked journals are owned and exploited by commercial presses. We are in some sense beholden to them uh, because we keep wanting to publish in science. Well, science is actually different, but we keep wanting to publish in the nature journals or in Elsevier journals. And because it's easier and quicker in MDPI or uh, some other uh, publishers as well. I think what would make it better is if we pushed our universities and we took the initiative to create new journals that Provided an alternative to the current system where we were committed to strengthening the field by supporting younger and younger scholars and those from, particularly in the field of sustainability and development, those from lower and middle income countries. It would help if we could provide this service at a relatively low cost. Elsevier charges, well, development, I think at this point, charges 30. $300 $300 or 3,200 dollars dollars for an article uh, that would be open access. And that's the journal and the publisher. You know, it's a gated journal, so it sells the subscription to articles. And then on top of that, it also collects money from authors for an open access piece. So yeah, yeah there are lots of things that can be done to change what exists. All of them are costly to individuals and therefore they don't happen.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Um, Arun, I wanna make sure that we um, talk about this um, subject that I mentioned earlier, which is IFRI, which is something else that you led and were involved in for a long time. So to remind listeners, this is the International Forestry Research Resources and Institutions Project, which you know I took an IFRI class when I was in grad school at Indiana it was one of the standard things you, you did um, then and had been for a while. And in my mind, it has stood as you know one of the paradigms of, of successful broadly comparative research on environmental governance, certainly community-based governance. It's how I learned about what a relational database was and how to do queries and what SQL was and lots of things. So could you talk to us about how you got involved in that to to start the conversation?
1: So I think back in 1991, when I was writing up my dissertation, Lynn received an invitation from FAO and from Marilyn Hoskins at FAO to think about how the arguments that she was making in governing the commons could be operationalized into a better understanding and study of forests around the world. And I think that, you know, she organized a planning meeting and she asked me to come because of her students at that time. I think I was the only one working on forests. And so I came there from Duke and, you know, Lynn was very, you know, Lynn Lynn had such capacity. I and mean, this is just amazing. She brought people from all over and then she got some support from FAO and. She launched IFRI traveling to like, you know, her vision was that IFRI would have a coordinating center, but then a whole bunch of additional research centers, which would, who would all be focused on doing the same thing, which is collecting data on the same variables across contexts over time to understand how forest commons or community forests are managed and how their management can be improved. And she, Met and talked with and brought together, if I recall, eight uh, eight cent eight research centers uh, from across the world, from you know from uh, Ecuador, from Mexico, India, Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda. Uh, it was just amazing what she accomplished uh, in a very very short span of time. And you're right. I think it is one of the relatively few examples of uh, research in the social sciences, uh, researchers in the social sciences working together to focus on the same questions and collecting data on the same variables over a long period of time. So Lynn was running this, and as she uh, as she managed the center and what is happening in it. Uh, she came to she came to the decision that she would she wanted to travel less than what she was doing. And she asked me if I would, and I think perhaps again, because I had known her for a long time and because I was one of the few of her, one of the earliest of her students to be working on forests, if I would be willing to take over the coordination of IFRI. And I knew how much work she was doing. And I said, for how long? And she said, five years. Yeah. <laughs> I said, okay, I can do it for five years. And you know, she helped me write grant proposals to both the MacArthur Foundation and the Ford Foundation to get IFRI going. I was at McGill at that time briefly and then when I came to Michigan. And she talked to my dean to uh, push her to give me some staff support to manage IFRI. Wow. So she helped me in ways that were beyond what one would expect anyone to do. Uh, uh, because I think she also loved IFRI. She just thought it was such a marvelous thing to have done. And so I started coordinating IFRI's uh, uh activities back in 2005 and in 2010 there was nobody to complain to because 5 years had passed but and there was nobody else to take it over so i continued for another 6 or 7 years you know the interesting thing about IFRI is that although it was a very substantial collaborative research enterprise across uh, both countries and coordinating institutions and and collaborating institutions and research institutions, a lot of the work that happened in IFRI was funded by grants that did not really have IFRI as the target. (laughs) Some of the funding that Lynn got for IFRI was clearly about IFRI, but IFRI was also supported by NSF through a whole bunch of other grants that Lynn Raised uh, with Emilio and through SciPech. And then when it came to Michigan, through a couple of CNH proposals and some funding from DFID, which didn't really have IFRI of the target. They were focused on other things, but IFRI's goal of collecting data on the same variables for answering the same questions was met because it was so encompassing in what it imagined as its mission. Right, It could accommodate a whole range of different uh, research tasks. Mm. Uh, you know, IFRI still exists in the sense that the database is still there and many of the CRCs are still there, but we have not held an annual, a biennial meeting, which IFRI researchers met every two years. In part because, it, as is true for most research efforts, and not, not just research efforts, but also most implementation efforts. After funding an effort for a few years, donors experience fatigue and they move on to the next best shiny thing. And if we, and once an effort is 20 or 25 or 30 years old, which IFRI is roughly at this point, it's no longer new and shiny. It is maybe shiny, it's no, certainly not new <laughs> So, so yeah. IFRI is not really supported by any research, any any research funds at this point, uh, there is some amount of analysis still happening because there's a substantial database and people want to use that information, and because it is so uh, diverse in, the, in terms of what questions you can ask with the data that was that were collected, some of that work is still going on. I just shared access to the database with some students a couple of days ago. Mm.
0: So, were there findings from Ifri that you produced or someone else did that stand out to you as something that changed your perspective or were represented in an aha moment for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, fi- I mean it, the, the word findings is interesting. I think in the social sciences, there are an enormous number of findings. <laughs> and the problem we often run into is that we don't know which of these findings are really findings and which of them are speculations and need better evidence. I think what IFRI data and IFRI data analysis made possible is to provide better support of evidence for some existing within court findings in the field. I think many of the things that Lynn wrote in Governing the Commons were based on a relatively small data set. And and we are now doing a lot of research that either supports or perhaps undermines some of the uh, conclusions that she arrived at. But it's kind of amazing that with such limited data, the insights that Lynn produced have like, Governing the Commons was written in 1990. She started working on it, on it back in 86. And mean, 30 years later, we are still, the, the work we are doing is still lending support to what she, the, to the conclusions she came to with such limited information and such limited data. And that's kind of the brilliance of uh, the work on Commons and of Lynn's uh, contributions to it and of that field as a whole. That some of the findings seem evident, even if they're counterintuitive, uh, they seem evident with some thought, and now we are finding the evidence that supports some of these findings. So for example, this uh, you mentioned the special issue and feature in PNAS on community monitoring. And you know, I think Lynn wrote in 1990 uh, about the importance of community monitoring and how it supports more robust social ecological systems, such as the commons. And and the study uh, that was represented in the pages of PNAS comes to the same conclusion, but with stronger evidence, I guess. So in that sense, what you said, findings, you know, it's not that they're, count, they're, they're counterintuitive findings or the new findings. I think a lot of the findings that we have come to or that we have, uh, uh, inferred from the IFRI data, uh, essentially are findings that existed in the field, but we didn't have sufficient evidence to know if we should put credence into those findings. And that's what we, I think, a lot of the work in the Uncommons has done over the last 30
0: years. So, Rune, what are you doing now to build on these experiences? What do you want to do next? Do you want to start a new journal to deal with all those issues you mentioned? Do you want to build a shiny new IFRI? Or have is that a never again thing? What are your current thoughts?
1: I <laughs> know uh, the IFRI experience was not so negative that it would be a never again thing. In many ways, it was very rewarding. Uh, what do I want to do? That's a, That's, again, a tough question. Michael, I've been actually thinking about what I want to do over the last uh, year or so, even as I keep doing things. I think in many ways, academics just do what is in front of them. Uh, They think about, they think very carefully or a lot about what they want to do when they're in graduate school, at least in the social sciences and in the mode of training that I underwent. Your advisor doesn't just give you a question, you sort of struggle with what your question is. So that experience of trying to come up with what you want to do requires space and time that we often don't have in later stages of our career. And I feel very fortunate that over the last year or two, I have sort of been able to think about what I would like to do next. And you know, I'm, a lot of different thoughts are in my mind, a couple of them that uh, I'm particularly interested in. Uh, and they both connect with some of the suggestions or thoughts you mentioned. I'm particularly interested in extending some of the work that uh, I began thinking about in in collaboration with uh, my colleague, uh, Ashwini Chatra, a colleague and friend, Ashwini Chhatre, about how can we understand the effects of a single cause in multiple dimensions? So especially when you think about sustainability, it requires an alignment either in time or in space over different kind of outcomes. So in space, in terms of how does sustainability, you think of sustainability as being about social and ecological and environment and, and economic and no no intervention produces effects only in one of these dimensions, but we tend to study, most of us tend to study because of our disciplinary training or because of our relatively directed interests, only one set of outcomes of a particular intervention. And I think for research on sustainability, it is critical to study and understand the relationships between outcomes of different interventions in multiple dimensions, in more than one dimension. So I think that Interest remains still very present. And it's something that has become increasingly possible to investigate more carefully because we now have well-aligned spatially explicit uh, and anchored data sets on social environmental uh, economic outcomes. And often the question is how well can we analyze them? What are the methods through which we can understand co benefits, multiple outcomes that may be related to each other. So, how do we do? So that's one big question I, you know, that I have that I want to work on, and I want really everybody to work on it. And and uh, uh, you know, I push my students to think about as well. Uh-huh. It's linked to this idea of starting a new journal and thinking about the relationship between sustainability and development. We just recently launched a new master's specialization at Michigan on on sustainability and development and trying to train people in that field. Uh, Thinking really that's the most important need, not just for our field, but for the world more broadly, that we need to understand better the relationship Between sustainability and development, and we need to do more to advance both of these objectives. More specifically, I'm very interested, I've become very interested in thinking about the connection between resilience and equity and how uh, improvements in one affect the other. How do our more resilient social ecological systems more equitable, or more equitable systems more resilient and how can we both understand and test this uh, connection and our expectations about this relationship. So yeah, maybe these two things, uh, I, I don't know, I, maybe they'll keep me busy for the rest of my life or I might find something else that-
0: It sounds like they me. could. They
1: could, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. But as have to say, you never finish a dissipation. You just stop working on it. And I think it's the same thing with our research questions. You never finish mm-hmm. answering a question. You just stop working on it because you find something else that's more interesting.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to hear more episodes, you can use your local podcasting app or go to our website, org. The Incoming Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.